Oh, wait, no, no, hold on. We hold do on. need to do wait, that sorry. because of Zoom. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. It's not even been that long since the last recording and I've already forgotten how we do things. Um, and you mock okay. me for asking if it's 48k every episode. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, world clock time and date will go at like, uh, do you want to go at 10 past? Yep, on 10. Okay, so today is going to be book review, uh, Artifact Scene Book Club Corner. Um, we are going to review Jade City by Fonda Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, I got a couple of uh, points of follow-up, Bill, if that's okay. Sure, I'll allow it. We'll put a very clear uh, sort of like spoilers incoming at the moment which we start uh, reviewing Jade City. So uh, you'll know when to dip out if you haven't already read the book, mm-hmm. all right? Um, first point of follow-up. This comes um, from like ages and ages ago, Bill. We were t- I, I talked, uh, I mentioned uh, about how I dislike when uh, shows that are set uh, in like Viking times, for example, uh, have a bunch of people uh, speaking in RP. Remember that? Yes, yes. I can't, I can't remember the exact context of why that came up. And I think I made a point that wouldn't it be cool if everyone just spoke old English. That would be mm-hmm. kind of dope. And I started watching the show Vikings um, like two or three nights ago. Okay, yeah. It does what I wanted it to do. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, this is amazing. Didn't I recommend that at the time? I don't remember. It was so long ago. It was so long ago. Um, but just, you know, just to, um, I suppose, put it on air. Um, there's a point in the show where the Vikings come and raid the monastery at Lindisfarne. Yeah. These aren't crazy spoilers, folks, and the show has been out for years anyway, so... And that, that um, raid happened, like, 1,100 years ago, so, you know, get over it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and the monks are speaking in what I, I don't know if it's Old English or Middle English, but not, like, modern English. And they do that for a couple of sentences mm-hmm. to kind of get our brains into the mood, and then they switch into, you know, speaking, like... Um, modern humans and it's great it's so cool and they, they treat old slash middle english there just like a conlang is treated in a work of fiction we get a couple of lines in the conlang to adjust ourselves and then back to speaking english wonderful mm. highly recommend that is what more shows should do it's so it's adds so much flavor i love it yeah i i, I thought that that worked well that's the first point of follow-up second point of follow-up is bank of artifacts yet the triumphant return asmr oh. everyone um, so we got a letter uh, from Amber, and this this isn't too long, so I'll just read the whole shebang. Uh, I might omit bits for brevity, but it's not too bad. Uh, Hello, Edgar and Bill. My name is Amber. I am a game developer from the US. I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, but tend to be rather quiet online. I discovered Artifacts in when I was uh, about 16, uh, when I got interested in world building for D&D and writing. I am now 24. <laughs> Again, that's eight years. Yeah. Just what even is time? Um, anyways, the story behind this letter. While cleaning out my closet, I found this Georgian note left over from when I, re- I visited the Republic of Georgia a while ago. I've been meaning to send it, you f- uh, send it to you for a while, but couldn't find it for the life of me and figured I had perhaps misplaced it. Coming across it again, I jumped at the chance to submit it to the Bank of Artifexia. I stayed in Tbilisi while there and would love to visit it again someday should the world ever choose to calm down. Georgian cuisine is wonderful. 
dumplings, shawarma, bread with beans and or cheese. Also, they have licorice flavored soda. <laughs> it's produced with tarragon, um, which turns out to have a strong flavor of anise. Uh, I'm not quite the connoisseur of licorice that Edgar is. No one is, Amber. Uh, but I do enjoy it and thought you might appreciate that fact. It might sound like an odd form for that flavor to take, but I can assure you it was delicious. Highly recommend. While writing this, I got idly curious if I can buy some now. Wasn't able to last time I checked. Looks like they are still not exporting. However, I did find a recipe for Georgian tarragon soda, which I may try. I don't really have much in the way of questions for you either. I just love what you both do and look forward to more years of podcasts, videos, and world building. And maybe some world edgaring too. The new series shows so much promise. <laughs> Cheers, Amber. That was a lovely letter. I really enjoyed it. Thank that. you very much, Amber. Yeah, that's lovely. So uh, points on this, just one real quick, Georgia, we looked before, you know, the world came to the end, it came to an end with the pandemic there, myself and the captain looked at holidaying in Georgia, that country looks baller, just absolute baller, I would highly recommend anyone if they're looking for places to go to look into Georgia, it is really great. Um, the other thing is uh, world edgaring, I just want to address this real quick, I kind of have like uh, hubristic notions of doing some world edgaring here, um, as in build the setting on the channel and then write about it here, but like I am such a bad writer that it's just not going to fly, the stories are <laughs> going to be stupid and well, like not well constructed, so I would love to. I just am not skilled to be able to do that, uh, unfortunately. Um, it's not my it's not my bag. And then the other thing is the Georgia note. I think we do, we do not have any Georgia in the Bank of Artifacts here. This is 20, what is it, 20, what's the unit of currency? Larry. Larry. Georgian yeah. Larry. So uh, 20 Georgian Larry equates to 694 euro. Seven and that is seven fifty-five US dollars, and sure we may as well give it in Great British Sterling. Great British Sterling, sure. That's that's exactly what that currency is called. Um, Close enough. <laughs> I know it's a joke. Where's United Kingdom? Where's the UK? Ugh. It's there between France and Ireland. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate right, anytime, it. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Do you know I learned I learned something mad about the uh, about the UK? Oh yes. Uh, Great Britain. Never realized this. It's like, the, it comes from Brittany. Like, great as in the bigger part of it. Mental. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same route, yeah. And it's like, yeah. Brythonic was, was, the, was the people. I had people. absolutely no idea. Um, that was mad. And I, ugh, where is the bloody, Jesus, where is, where is England here? Come on, come on. Okay, I'm losing my mind. Okay, hold on, hold on. Ugh, 20 Georgian... 20 Georgian Larry is six pounds, seven pence. Thank you very much. I couldn't find the list. I am, I am blind. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for that, Amber. And also just to note, like you don't, you know, you don't feel the need to have to write questions to us in letters. I just really enjoy getting physical mail, you know, um, and hearing about our listeners. So they don't have to come with questions. Um, but yeah, I will add that to the Bank of Artifexia and the map, the money map should be on screen right now. That is a lovely letter. Thank you very much, Amber. I had Georgian food recently. You had Georgian food recently? Yeah, mm. for, for the Why? first time. Um, well, I was at a Georgian restaurant, so it seemed the polite thing to do. <laughs> you just, you land there and you go, give us a burger, please. I want a mac, please. <laughs> yeah, so I was in Berlin uh, a couple of weeks ago 
And while I was there, I went to a Georgian restaurant and Georgian food is deadly. Oh my God. I totally forgot. How was Berlin? Berlin was good. Any Berlin stories? I went <laughs> to um, the Spy Museum and I went to the Computer Game Museum. This wasn't my first time in Berlin, so I didn't like ignore going to the Reichstag and everything in favor of doing those. But um, I went to the Computer Game Museum and the Spy Museum and I went to the Stasi Museum um, and I went to the theater and I ate Georgian food and I went to a uh, Tajikistani tea house and had some Russian food. And yeah, overall, Berlin, good city. Recommend. Berlin is going to museums. Do you know, remember we had ages ago discussing about how I dislike museums? Yeah. I've tried to, because whenever I have an opinion uh, and, 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 uh, and it's met with like hostility, I try and take a step back and be like, hmm, maybe my opinions are wrong. And I try and like re-examine them. So I can't remember when it was. Just after we had that discussion about how museums are crap, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I, I think, was I in Edinburgh or something? And I decided I'll go to a museum. Um, and I gave it my best shot. And I'm just like, they're just, it's just so dull. It's so dull. It's just like clutter everywhere. And you don't learn anything. I hate, I just, I really, I really can't get on board museums. I do um, learn things personally. I see, I don't because like there's only a little, little plaque or whatever in front of an exhibition that has like a very, you know, limited amount of information. Whereas it'd be like, if I wanted to learn about a woolly mammoth or whatever, go to Wikipedia and there's like a, a wall of text, which, you know, hopefully is cited well that you can expand upon your reading there. But when you're just walking through a museum, I get very little info and i don't get um i don't feel amazed by seeing stuff so like by so i don't get amazed at seeing a replica woolly mammal there i'm kind of like cool someone made a very large toy um that doesn't like get my gears going um so for me i tried bill i tried so hard and it's fine it's 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 incomprehensible to me but it's fine (laughs) like it's I, i don't say that as a judgment thing it's just cool yeah, yeah, it's just not the way your brain is wired, so you can't you can't understand. And I I, I find your position to be incomprehensible. I'm just kind of like, how does you enjoy, like how long do you spend in a museum, Bill? When you go to a museum, I mean, it depends on the size of the museum. Depends on a lot of factors. I spent about two, maybe two and a half hours in the Stasi Museum. Wow. Now it was it was very dense, and I was definitely flagging by the end of it. Um, but yeah, it was about that. Wow, God, I could never fathom doing that. You and I are very different people. It's built different. Now, anyhow, so that is uh, Georgian food. <laughs> follow-up done. Yes. So I would like to talk, final bit of follow-up, I, I want to talk about Avatar. Is that okay with you, Bill? I suppose. Now, I hate to bring this up, but I'd like to talk about the robot discussion again. The robot discussion uh, was kind of permeated everything <laughs> with regards to the uh, to the last episode. Um Upon reflection, I'd like to tell you where I'm at here mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. We don't need to go into a big conversation about this. Otherwise, it probably will be an hour of us debating. Uh, I just want to tell you where, where I'm at and we'll move on from there. Um, I First of all, I want to apologize because I quickly derailed the discussion, not into uh, a discussion about the morphology of machines, but into a discussion about like the difference between specialist and generous robots. I, I dropped, I listened back and I dropped like a couple of examples of specialist robots and that completely derailed the whole thing. And the two of us were kind of talking over one another. You were making one point and I was addressing it with a completely unrelated point. 
And that didn't help the sort of um, cohesion of, of that section. Um, so upon reflection, my stance, I am unmoved. I try to be moved by uh, people commenting the Reddit and listening back to your words, but I am unmoved. My stance is that whether it be a specialist or a generalist, generalist robot, um, I find the uh, assumption that the humanoid form is optimal for that robot to take to be a flawed one. My point is not that humanoid robots don't function or don't work, like we have clear counterexamples to that, um, but I don't think they are the only form robots can take. And I think you can have both specialist and generalist robots that look nothing like a human that perform um, both specialized and generalist tasks uh, equally as well, if not better. That's my position. Again, I tried I tried listening to the arguments and they all just didn't do it for me, uh, unfortunately. I'm, I'm probably wrong about these things. I'm often wrong about these things, but I this one I, I've, I've, I've failed to be, I've, I've failed to become swayed. Um, the, the two things I want to flag uh, as being kind of like points that I do agree on uh, is uh, a few people mentioned the um, psychological or the asp- uh, marketing aspect. Uh, of why humans or why robots may be built humanoid because you know we can um, identify more of them they look more friendly they don't look like you know hell machines or whatever and <laughs> that I totally get like the the uh, the building of a robot that looks like us so we can go oh it looks cute and uh, we can feel more comfortable with it being in our homes or whatever totally get that like I, I am total agreeance with that Absolutely. Um, and also someone, again, I can't remember the name, and I think it was a couple of people as well, pointed out uh, that I'm not really taking into account human pattern recognition and that even if some work of sci-fi um, were to present on screen a robot that wasn't uh, based on a human or based on a crab, to use the avatar examples, our brains would still go, yeah, it kind of looks like a dog or whatever, even though it's not. And I think one person brought up the example of, of Spot, from Boston Dynamics, uh, when they're like, everyone refers to it as a dog, but really, there's not really anything dog-like about it. Like, it has four legs, which loads of animals It's a quadruped, that's it. (laughs) It, It's, yeah, it's a quadruped, and it also has an arm coming out of its back, so it's not dog-like at all, but we just project and go, Mm. it's a dog. And I totally get that as well, and I suppose, just to tie it back to, like, what I would like robots to appear like on screen, it would be kind of cool if it was less of like, that is just a human, except made from machine, and more of a sort of like, it's kind of like, if you imagine a mix between a human and an octopus, something like that, where it's not, where our human pattern recognition doesn't easily pigeonhole it into one form, it's kind of hard to define. I think that would look really cool, as opposed to just robots that are like straight human, straight crab, straight whatever. Do you know what I mean? A little bit more um, weird, I guess. I guess I just want weirder robots. And I believe that weirder robots can exist and perform any of the functions that we would require robots to perform. Um, so that's my point. If, if you want to retort, you totally can, but I just wanted to get that on record. I want to make it clear that I never said anything to the effect that humanoid robots would be optimal. Sure, sure, sure. My, my, my point was that there is utility to, to starting there because you have a proven shape that can do those things. So it makes sense. You can cut out, like, time trying to find what shape can do it, because we know that this one can. Um, so that it was never that this is optimal or that it is necessarily the best. It was just, like, it's not totally stupid to start there for a lot of things. 
Um, sure. As regards the the marketing aspect and the the pattern recognition, um, I actually have two counter examples. Um, mm. uh, people will will bond with anything. Humans, we love to pack bond with stuff. Like people like love their plants and and even inanimate objects and like they love any pet that they have, you know. Um, and people love Roombas. <laughs> they do, yeah. People love their like people treat Roombas like their pets sometimes. Um, so uh, I'd be interested in like the the bonding with non-humanoid robots. Um, a bit more. Um, it, 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 there probably is some kind of thing to it being human shaped that it's it's friendlier or whatever. But I I wouldn't say it's necessary. And um, sure, yeah, like I mean, you know, robots that currently exist, uh, you know, bomb disposal robots. You know, they're not. I mean, they're not robot robots. They're c- controlled units. But like, you know what I mean? They're not humanoid at all. Um, so you know that 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 is an example of a, a specialized one. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but like my, my point was never they are the only, it is the only shape that makes sense or it is the best shape that makes sense. My point was that it isn't necessarily stupid. Sure. I, I, I'm Without starting the debate again, I think that the thing I wanted to push back on there, uh, and hopefully I can put it in, in better words th- this time around, is that um, m- my take was that it perhaps isn't uh, such a wonderful starting point because what works for biology may not necessarily work for machines. Now, I'm not an engineer, so that statement could be stupid. That's just how I feel about it. Mm. Um, so I think there's where you and I disagreed a little bit and then it spiraled into like a chaotic mess of like talking <laughs> over one another. Um, and yeah, which is fine. Like we can disagree. We disagree on things loads of times, like robots and museums and the whole shebang. So it's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> we kept it simple, which was the main thing. Um, so yeah, that was a robot follow-up from from Avatar. One quick point that's popped in my head that wasn't in the show notes, but it'll take two seconds, is that most people, uh, I found it interesting that most people were like us. We were like, the, the film was pretty meh. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was kind of, we had a good bit of banter, like, you know, um, slagging the film and things like that. There was one person who absolutely adored the film, yeah. and they didn't. They didn't give reasons. And I, I, I can't remember who you are, Bill. If you could find them, they're on the Reddit, and we could drop their name. Um, Nifotog nineteen ninety nine. Uh, what's that again? Nifotog nineteen ninety nine. Nifotog nineteen ninety nine. Please leave your reasons. I am so interested in hearing because, um, again, just I felt like everyone was on the same. Um, page that was just kind of like meh it was fine um i really want to hear what did it for you uh with this movie really really want to hear it um so that was one thing and the final thing on on um on avatar was we got a message from copy planet on youtube um a quote the thing with the eclipses, because we talked about eclipses, is that they, uh, they're they sort of a daily occurrence. Pandora seems to be tidally locked, but not really. It's never really explained and really weird to me. This this is interesting because if there are eclipses on Pandora, which there seem to be, we would expect them to be a daily occurrence because the day of the moon, uh, yeah. a day on that moon, is defined by its orbit around the planet so you would you would have a daily occurrence um pandora seems to be tightly locked but not really i don't know where this commenter is getting that information from um i'm really intrigued that there's other info 
on the like physical state of Pandora, maybe in some supplementary material that I have not come across. If there is, please let me know. Um, I suppose the only thing I'll say here is that you can have non-tidally locked or quasi-tidally locked moons um, of gas giants. Now, I'd expect Pandora being a major moon to be fully tidally locked, but it's not like beyond the realms of possibility that it lies at a distance from its gas giant uh, parent such that it hasn't become fully locked yet uh kind of like mercury mercury isn't really like fully locked but it's in a quasi-locked state if i recall correctly um so that's totally a thing that can happen um and it's not really that weird um but i am intrigued that pandora seems to be tidy locked but not really i want to know where that information is coming from and mm-hmm. um, if there is supplemental reading someone send it to me i want to read about it and that my friend uh is avatar follow-up done would you like to know of a weird robot in fiction <laughs> sure we'll go back to the robots um it just it just that it just occurred to me if you google robot interstellar the robot interstellar called the TARS robot. Oh, God, yeah, I remember. That is a weird robot, isn't it? Um, now, I only saw the second half of that movie, um, and I thought it was very, very stupid. Um, wait, wait, why did you only see the second half? What the hell? Because I came in and turned on the TV, and the second night it was halfway through. Oh, wow. You sat and watched the entirety of the second half? Not kind of. Like, I was with friends, and it was just like oh, something okay. on in the background. Um, cool, uh, okay, okay didn't convince me that I want to watch the rest of it. But I was taken with that robot because I had like, not exactly a fever dream or a hallucination, but I had this like really strong dream image of a robot quite similar in design to that when I was a small child. Um, And it really uh, kind of freaked me out to see it represented then in a film from like 20 years later. I gotta say, this robot looks stupid. (laughs) I mean... I, I I get it, yeah. It it it's I I could see I could see flaws in it, but um you know it's one that's very different to to human yeah. shape. So, um for <coughs> excuse me, uh, for anyone who doesn't know this robot, um if you imagine like a Jenga tower, um glued together and put on its side, and like with all the bits at various different angles, that's it walking. It's four Jenga tower slabs connected in the middle and with some computer screens on it it's very very strange it has no wheels no feet no nothing mm-hmm. um that is an odd odd robot <laughs> it looks like or it looks a bit like it looks a bit like a a, a modern fridge with stilts like with two stilts <laughs> on either side and the middle portion is like a modern fridge it's that's a very odd robot um anyhow anyhow so wait hold on is that follow up done now i think so Okay, um, this isn't follow-up, this is PSA for uh, upcoming uh, podcasts, not in the near future, but in the like medium-term future, because we'd like to get back to doing more standard artifacts in episodes, it's been a while. Um, in the medium-term future, perhaps a couple of months away, uh, we are going to review another book, and we are going to review The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Um as a sort of teaser, it's an epic fantasy set in an India-inspired world, which I think is pretty novel. I've not come across many of them, and I think that might be a cool one to review and talk about the world building in it. Um, so, The Jasmine Throne, Tasha Suri, 
Um, links in the description. Pick up a coffee, copy, give it a read, and we'll review it at some stage in the um, in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Let's talk some Jade City. Jade City by Fondly. By Fondly. As always, uh, I think the format here should be we give our overall thoughts whether we liked it or whether we hated it and use that as a, as a way to frame the ensuing discussion. So overall thoughts, summary summary of what went on and then we get into what we liked and disliked. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Bill, what did you think? Overall, good book, bad book, did you enjoy? I thought it was a great book. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, you thought it was a great book? Yeah, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed it. Wow. Good. Uh, I I am similar. I think it was wonderful, like really wonderful. <laughs> and I I've tried my best to come up with like criticisms of the book. And I'm just like, I don't really have much. Like, it's just a really, really fun book. So good. We both we both enjoyed it. Excellent, excellent. Um, do you want to give a uh, quick plot rundown? Sorry to put you on the spot. Okay, I always do this wrong when you ask me to do this. I know. That's why I keep asking you. It's great. <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna give a couple, a, a very, no, this isn't so much a plot rundown as kind of a premise rundown. Sure. All great literature asks a question, right? Right. And the question posed by Jade City is, what if there were Kung Fu wizards? <laughs> and the answer <laughs> given in Jade City is, if there were Kung Fu wif- wizards, they would be the mafia. <laughs> that is, uh, I wouldn't call that a summary, but that, yeah, that as is I said, great. That, that, that's that, that's the premise. That's yeah. Uh, uh, my sort of premise was it's uh, Wuxia Godfather. Yeah, hundred um, percent. That's hundred percent. Absolutely it. Um, to do a bit more of a summary, just you know, <laughs> to entice people to read this book had they not already uh, read this book. Um. Oh, spoilers boy. from this point, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we forgot to do spoilers. I'm so sorry. Spoilers from this point on. If you haven't read the book, do not listen any further. There'll be no content uh, other than Jade City beyond this point. Stop now, read the book, come back. Um, so as a summary, um, we have this setting, uh, the island of Kacon, um, mm. where the majority of the action takes place. On this island, there is a city called Janlun. It is... I think roughly modeled off like Hong Kong. Sort of, it has Hong Kong sort of vibes to it. Um, there is this city is uh, quasi controlled by a bunch of these mafiosa style clans um, who are basically like kung fu wizards fueled by the power of jade. Like just like IRL, the stone jade imbues a certain demographic of people with like magic powers. And they use this to kind of, as a sort of weapon to conduct their mafioso-style business. Um, the book is basically, uh, it goes through the story of what happens when the balance of power on this island between these mafia gangs begins to tip. And uh, we 
see the island ascend into warfare clan based warfare and at the end um there is like a reprieve uh, our uh, the protagonist clan, the No Peak clan, gains an important strategic victory by defeating uh, a chap called Gaunt Ash, uh, a high-ranking member of the other big clan, the Mountain clan. And that kind of puts the war on hold and sets up the second book, which is Jade War, where things probably go all mental. So that's kind of the plot. Mafia-style mafia, um, clan warfare uh, with magical jade energy. Um, and we see the the beginnings of a full on war in this book. Does that sound like a decentish summary? That's pretty pretty much it, yeah. Okay, so um, talk to me. What did we like about this bill? Um, let me open my notes here. Uh, it was it was very. Uh, the story was great, right? It was <laughs> like a a really good version of the kind of the classic. Uh, Godfather type story of you know trying to deal with um with the family and uh, for example Shay is one of the characters in it and she tr- she's a member of the the kind of the lead family within the No Peak Clan and she tries to distance herself from her family's activities but can't escape which is essentially the same as is a um Michael in the Godfather. I'll take your word for that. I have not again seen the Godfather, so sure. I haven't seen the Godfather. I have not seen The Godfather. I'm I generally I'm not a fan of mafia style um, content. Doesn't do it for me. Um, okay. This did for some reason. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've no compulsion to watch Sopranos really or The Godfather any of that. Interesting. Um, mm. Yeah. So essentially, she's trying to to remove herself from from the the family and their their activities and can't escape it. it you know events conspire to to draw her back in um the world building in it is without like going too much into the world building it's clear that there is a lot of depth to the world building yeah 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 agree one of the things that uh made this obvious to me is so the jade um is is what what gives people their powers and we see that primarily in the form of combat and stuff, that the, the clans use it to, to fight and it heightens their perception and things. But there's also a religion that's reliant upon it. There's also mentioned that uh, there's doctors that are mm-hmm. jaded and they use that in their, in their medicine. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't belabor the point. It doesn't make you read loads about what the, um, what, what the doctors do or what the, what the, the priests who are jaded do but it is there and it is present and it is clearly a, a different thing so jade doesn't just exist in this, in this society and have this one effect there's a you know it, it has it has trickled down it has spread to a lot of areas of of the world building um if 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 i may jump in here um absolutely i i think and further like jade also there's other nations mentioned in the book the Spenians and the Egotanians, um, yeah. Jade also affects them. So Jade works on as a commodity on the global scale mm-hmm. as well and like plays with their culture, etc. Um, and I think as well, the what was the other thing I was going to say about the Jade that you just said? Um, oh yeah, on the world building. Um, there's also a, a good deal of like religion building done in the book as well through little interludes mm-hmm. uh, that help tie into the story as well. So yeah, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head there. Like we're not, belabored and have to read a ton of exposition on what this world is um it just feels very lived in 
and very real. Yeah. Um, given the way that uh, Lee sets it up, and I think that's I think it was good. It was really good. And even even besides the jade, there's a lot of um, mention of things like makes of cars and stuff uh, during the book, and mm-hmm. it doesn't. Mm-hmm spend too long trying to explain what those are just like the duchessa pulled up on the curb and it's like okay yeah, it's a car we get that it's a car it doesn't it doesn't belabor the point and and make sure we know what that is or its specifications or anything um Mm -hmm. which that's a thing that i always appreciate it it feels um it feels more real because if i was reading uh the godfather it's not gonna go into a lot of detail explaining what car they're driving and what that is, because, you know, we know what it is. Um, yeah. So kind of trust us a little. And, and the whole book is a little bit that. Like, I, I just, it popped in my mind, there's one part where uh, Shay, again, a prominent member of the, our protagonist, No Peak Clan, um, is coming home uh, to John Loon, the city, and she has, she's in a taxi, and I think the taxi driver makes some comment on like Espenian rave music and how he dislikes it um mm. or she makes that comment I can't remember and it's just left there that there's like oh okay so this in this city there's like a bunch of different musical traditions going on people mm. listen to like Jan Loon folk and Espenian rave music and opera. it just there's opera mentioned as well and it's just um and again it's not belabored it just it's just dropped mm. there and it just feels very lived in I really enjoy it um if I was to have a criticism I felt that sometimes certain things were over-explained. Um, like, in conversations between characters, uh, someone would say something, and then the narration would explain the significance of that statement. And that that annoyed me a little. Just kind of, I, I, I would, you know, felt you could trust us to, to understand that or to, mm. to figure that out for ourselves. Or, for example, um, there's a scene where Lan, who's the, at the start, he's the head of the No Peak clan. He's the pillar, the leader of the mm-hmm. No Peak clan. Um, he's, um, he's been injured and has gotten a load of extra jade and he's, he's struggling to, to physically manage his jade and he's um, taking a drug to help him with it. And he begins, begins acting really erratically. And it was very clear that this was because of the jade and because of the drugs he was on. But the the narration yeah. had to explain that to us, and or well, the narration felt it had to explain that to us, and it didn't. It was just like, no, trust me, we 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 got it, we we got what's going on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that would be my I, main criticism. I can't say I like I I recognize this, and upon reflection, I remember reading that, but I can't say it was a problem for me as reading uh, reading through it and i think that probably I, I found this book extremely easy to read like it was really digestible you could really chew through it and maybe that was part of it that like it didn't really require me to pay too much attention because mm-hmm. again a certain uh, certain important things were very clearly marked as being important so i can kind of like um do other things while listening to the audiobook and not lose uh what's going on and stuff so i guess i didn't see that as a bad point per se in the way i consumed the book um i should say at this stage just to keep everyone orientated we should probably just outline who these characters are um lan uh is like bill said the head of our protagonist no peak clan uh his role the the godfather of the clan he's the god well would he be the godfather surely his grandfather would be the godfather no oh no hold on what's what's the what's the name the is it Uh, boss hold on what's the structure of a mafia 
family. I have no idea. No idea. While you're looking up, uh, Lan is the head honcho. Uh, he's called the Pillar uh, of the clan. That is the formal yeah. name for his role. His brother, Hilo, um, is the horn of the clan, which is kind of like, it, I guess, like he operates the military ring of the clan. He orders a bunch yeah. of his thugs around the place and gets them to do all the stuff that mafia people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Shay l- starts off in the book, as Bill mentioned, uh, she's a sister. Uh, she wants to distance herself, but after a while, she can't anymore and she becomes what's known as a weatherman. And a weatherman, yeah. again, I, I I don't know about the lore of mafia stuff, so I might be wrong here, but it feels very much like a sort of um, the intelligence wing of the clan. Like it's it's her job to like find out what's going on and who knows what and keep eyes and ears out, etc. And also the the legitimate uh, business and political side of their things, because the, I suppose yeah. the, the main difference with with a, a mafia style organization is that it is uh, it is a legitimate organization and it operates publicly. Um, they in some ways it's like a political party as well. Um, mm-hmm. but the, I mean the 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 analog's very clear. So yeah, so the pillar is a sec- is effectively the boss. The weatherman is the consigliere, and the the horn is the underboss. And underneath the horn, we have uh, fists who control fingers. So fingers are like the the street level operatives. The fists are their sergeants, and they report to the to the horn. So that's like soldiers and capos and then the horn being the underboss. And I really enjoy these terms because like, yeah. I know it's clearly setting up an idea that the clan is like a an entity on itself and all these tor- uh, terms are barring pillar, which is kind of just a euphemism for spine, um, are anatomical terms. So like the clan is a body. It operates as a whole. Mm-hmm. Like these are all like elements within the greater whole. And I really enjoy um, that fists, fingers, horn, pillar, aka spine. I think that's a really cool, um, good, cool symbolism going on there. And also, just really quickly, I I'm going to steal pillar uh, as an honorific um, mm. to be. If I ever want to conlang and build an honorific, uh, I'm going to take pillar because I think that's great. The idea that the pillar is, you know, you are upright, you are sturdy, you are reliable, um, you're an honourable. Uh, member of society if you're a pillar like I am stealing that and putting it into a conlang at some stage it's really cool um, so those are the three characters there's obviously ancillary characters around that um, and we have this the same roles fulfilled in the antagonist clan the mountain clan um, we have a pillar there a horn fists fingers etc yeah. so each of these clans have that and we also as well have like many smaller clans um, like by far and away in Jan Loon, the mountain clan is the biggest, then comes No Peak, and then everyone else is just like, you know, other on the pie chart. But there's loads yeah. of other ones involved there, um, which again adds a bit of depth, but we're not ever, it's never uh, enumerated the amount of clans mm-hmm. or who they are and what, what they do or whatever. It's just we're letting know that this world runs deep, and that's cool. Yeah. To be a proper member of the clan, um, you need to be jaded. So you need to be someone who, who can use jade. And the the way to become that is by attending schools that, that teach in the six jade disciplines, which are strength, steel, perception, lightness, deflection, and channeling. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're fairly self-explanatory for the most part. Strength is gives you physical strength. Steel mm-hmm. uh, makes you more impervious to harm. 
perception heightens your perception. Lightness is like doing the wushu stuff of being able to run up uh, along tree branches and jump very high and things. Uh, deflection is, de- you know, kinetically deflecting things. And channeling is like interacting with, with life force. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can use it to harm or to heal. Um, and so you you progress through the jade uh, disciplines um, in, in a school and then become a member of, of a clan. Um, but there is also a black market underneath of criminals who can't do that or who, who didn't have access to those schools and still want Jade. And that's actually how the story kind of begins. It's the first scene and it kicks off a lot of the events. Um, two, two young fellas trying to steal some Jade for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's another example of the depth. Like, you know, this this exists. This is the, the system as we have set it up in the clans. But obviously it's going to have effects outside of that. There are other people who are going to want to uh, have access to that power that don't have access to the structure. Uh, yeah, you're dead right. And there's things like we hear about people panning for Jade because it's mined in the mountains mm. and like the runoff people will like try and scramble for to try and eat yeah. out a bit of money out of this or status or power or whatever. Um, and then as well, there also is a thing about uh, who can be jaded because I'm going to get this wrong because I don't really remember. Um, but I think the original people of the island, like the Aboriginal people, they yeah. are immune to Ibuke. jade. The Abuke. They're immune to jade. So like if they mm-hmm. were to wear these stones, they would not gain any magical powers. Um, mm-hmm. All the foreigners, uh, like the Espenians and Egotanians, are also immune to jade, uh, I think. No. And... Oh no! Are they sensitive to jade? Yeah, they're sensitive, but not as not as um, it's not as effective for them as it is for the Kekanese. Right, and the Kekanese they're uh, they are um, like mixed race Aboke and uh, foreign Shatari. invaders Shatari. That's it. Shatari. And then they possess the right biology or whatever to be able mm-hmm. to like truly harness the jade so you have a whole oh and then you also have within the kekanese people the people who should be prime candidates to use a jade you have just like random um mutations occur in the population and certain people are born as what's known as stone eyes so mm-hmm. they possess all the genetics to be able to wield jade but for whatever reason they're just born without that skill and they're called stone eyes so you have a whole bunch of different levels of like magic wielding going on um depending on you know race and you know genetics and things like that which i think was really cool and again mm-hmm. really really in-depth and not belabored so uh, i enjoyed that there's and oh, i thought on, it was i thought it was, you know again the fact that it went into that ethnic history that the kekanese who are the the, the dominant race of kekan aren't actually the aboriginal people of there they're they've been there for you know five six hundred years or whatever but um you know, they, it gives like that kind of depth to history that that felt very real, and also the the whole thing about the Abuke or the people who actually um, mine the jade because they're the only ones who can safely work with it. So all power in this is based on the exploitation of the yeah. labor of an ethnic underclass. Um, yeah, just it's nice to see things like that being acknowledged in fantasy fiction. Yeah, you know, for the, sure, the realism of that. For sure. Uh, another thing I really enjoyed as well, uh, in contrast to a lot of other fantasy fictions, is just how kind of like small the world is. Like, really, the story just revolves around one city and that's it. Like, it's uh, instead of like having continent spanning adventures, you're spanning districts in a city. And that was yeah. kind of a cool 
vibe to get into. And it's amazing how for like how small the story actually is, how big and diverse and rich it felt. Mm-hmm. Um, which is she, so she did really well um, uh, writing that. I really enjoyed it, and it was really cool. I don't think I've ever read like urban fiction before. I really enjoyed the urban fiction. Um, I enjoyed, yeah, not going to like Minas Tirat, but going to like a shrimp shop. That's kind of cool <laughs> uh, on the corner. I really enjoyed that. The you mentioned at the start of the book the the events that kick off the thing about the two boyos um trying to nick some jade off a clan member. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the fellas is called Beryl, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it's meant to be played like this, but he comes off as great comic relief because his whole shtick is that throughout the whole book he keeps popping up and he's always on the grind to try and get himself some jade but his all of his schemes always just fall short and he ends up like thinking he's done a great thing and in fact it's actually disastrous and then he falls out of favor of people it's he almost came across as a bit um team rocket-esque like dastardly villain who keeps trying to do bad things but he's always foiled by their kind of incompetence at the last moment and i just think it was great and the book finishes with uh beryl going to lan's grave and doing a bit of grave robbing and i just had like it wasn't stated but i was just kind of like yeah but beryl we all know this isn't going to go anywhere like you're going to mess this up like you're going to i don't know you're going to trip and fall and all your jade is going to just fall into a river and go away or whatever he was just great i i don't know if you read him as comic relief but i did and i loved not it at all <laughs> oh no i loved it like it's like i thought it was like dark it was obviously dark comic relief because yeah. he ends up he ends up inadvertently killing lan and stuff but like he just kept failing and it just it was hilarious and i liked it as well because like it, it brought a little bit of um it like the whole book is, is obviously very serious you know it deals with mm-hmm. serious matters of life and death um and i enjoyed this one character who it just that arc didn't seem to be all that serious and that way he was a bit kind of comic relief for me um so i'm sorry you didn't read it as comic relief because that was like highlighted a book i really enjoyed it <laughs> um who was your favorite character i other than barrow other than Beryl. Uh, well, Beryl didn't really have much character development. Again, comic relief. But um, the I'm torn. Like, they all have um, merit to them. They're all interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, even Hilo. Like, um, I'll give you a proper answer in a second. But let me just go out. Um, Hilo, again, is the horn. He's, like, the, the leader of the thugs. And he's presented as a very kind of, like, um, fiery, aggressive, like, manly man. Uh, like the muscle, you know? Um, But even him throughout the book, like he has moments of tenderness, of softness, of introspection, moments of like great insight and tactical cunning towards the end. And so he, a very very well-developed, non-stereotypical character. And that kind of holds for all of them. Like they're all like that. They all have things that they really enjoy. Um, If I were to pick one, I think it would be a toss-up between Shay and Ait Mada, um, okay. who is the pillar of the Mountain Clan. The, um, the main antagonist. The main antagonist, because she, um, she's just like, she's just like a boss. Like, she's like, she. this person, Ait Mada has like, a, a bit girl boss, I suppose, but like, um, uh, this person has like murdered people left, right and center to get to where she is. Like a cunning tac- tactician, um, like a skilled negotiator, all that sort of jazz, but she's not presented as being kind of like, like 
girl bossy in a way or like that like hypersexualized um sort of yeah that sort of thing as well she's just kind of presented as being like a normal person who's just Mm. like really really astute and she'd had to you know she had to fight against prejudice within her clan because she's a woman and like i kind of really i really vibe with ipe mata even though she's a horrible human being um shay would be the other option because she gets a lot of play in this book because i think her story is quite interesting but trying to distance herself um she she we hear more about her than anyone else i think and therefore she is immediately likable but i think I think Ipe Mata probably tops it for me. What, what was what was yours? Hilo. Hilo? Why Hilo? Yeah. Because as you say, he's he's just presented as the as the muscle and he's like he's a hothead. Um but as as you go on through the book, it's it's clear he has such such depth to him and he's totally sincere in his beliefs. Like he he is absolutely 100 percent uh sincere in his commitment to to the to the family and in in his in his honor and it's a it's a totally different moral world from from one i exist in but it makes sense and he's like it's 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 just it's so consistent in him Hmm. um and that like everything about it about him is commitment to the clan and commitment to honor um and he's you know there's a point where it's clear he is willing to sacrifice himself just as much as he's willing to sacrifice those under him um and you know it would be it would have been very easy to to portray him as a hypocrite or a coward or uh a manipulator uh but he he isn't that yeah i mean i guess that's one of his big faults as well though because he is sure, so yeah fervent in his belief like there's loads of times where he could have done with having just a small bit of lan or shay's cunning um and like it's pointed out a lot throughout the book that the mountain the mountain are worried about hilo um -hmm. because lan the boss um he's a reasonable man who is willing to uh who they think would be willing to merge the clans to to prevent warfare um but again hilo being principled and you know, willing to fight for those principles represents a serious problem. Um, so I, I guess that just further proves your point that he's a very interesting character. That like his his honor and his his loyalty is both a, a huge plus and a massive ni- minus. Um, yeah. For him in the context of the story, which is which is kind of dope. In, in yeah, but I think as well, his he can't be bought out for that reason. Like he he in the way that the other people will see. Oh, you know, we we can avoid we can avoid conflict this way, and that's what the what the opponents are are relying on. They're relying on, oh, we'll, we want to avoid conflict and national interest, or we could buy some of them out. We could subvert some of them with money or or with with other inducements. And he's immune to that because no, we have to be this way, and honor is important and loyalty is important. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I, I I just thought that was quite compelling. Did you have like a, a least favorite character? Um, any duds in there for you? Character wise, no, I don't think there's anyone I didn't like. What about you? I'm trying to run through them. Not really. No, because even when I think of like the more minor characters, they're all they're all interesting. Like when mm. uh, Hilo's wife, 
yeah. or the the person who becomes his wife throughout the story uh, throughout the course of the book um she's interesting because uh, yeah. she's presented very much as a kind of like trad wife sort of thing uh but like not at all we we find out and is cunning and helps with the cause has great yeah. ideas is a tactician as well um same with the make brothers i think of them and i'm kind of like oh well they were kind of crap characters and then i think about the backstory they're given and their struggles um throughout their life and their lives and their positions in the clan as a result of the war and i'm kind of like there are no crap characters here there really aren't um which is kind of amazing yeah nearly all the characters are developed and and interesting which i think is really cool um just it, it popped into my head there one more thing on comic relief mm-hmm. the shrimp do you pick up on the shrimp the shrimp was great it was so fun no <laughs> no the constant references to shrimp uh so the uh at one stage in the book a battle occurs and the mountain overtake i think is it the twice lucky i think it's the twice twice lucky it's the, like this the, the food shop like the, the restaurant yeah the restaurant yeah yeah uh, and it's ran food by a chap shop. called well done bill <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's ran by a chap called mr une um yeah. and mr une makes really good shrimp and like the mountain comes in uh ransacks the place and then the 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 horn of the mountain gaunt ash sits down and he's like prepare me some of your finest shrimp and then he brings over shrimp and there's this whole like scene where it's like this truly is the most marvelous shrimp <laughs> i have ever tasted and then later on when hilo and gaunt ash um like fight at at the end the, the, the culminating battle they talk about the shrimp in the twice lucky again and then the story ends with 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 uh hilo and them sitting in the twice lucky admiring the shrimp it's like the shrimp got so much play and i just loved it like these bloodthirsty fighters just like salivating over food it's like ah if i die now i'll never be able to eat the shrimp out of the twice lucky the finest shrimp in all of jan moon it was just great so there was a really good balance for me anyways of like yeah again real serious sort of clan warfare interpersonal drama and just these little like specklings of like sass and comedy throughout it that made it just it took the edge off this book taking itself a bit too seriously for me it was kind of it was a fun ride which i i I very much enjoyed and and like bad people and monsters can also be hilarious and gaunt ash <laughs> was hilarious in that instance with his monologue about shrimp to hero as he tried to kill him <laughs> wonderful um the uh i have a point on the writing mm-hmm. um just a real quick one this is one of the most vivid books we have reviewed on this podcast for me um the it uh, I would assume, being a crap writer, that is incredibly difficult to write wuxia and have it feel like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? Um, Like, yeah, to say like, oh, he leapt up the wall in a single bound or whatever, doesn't have the same feel as watching that on screen and seeing the the physical thing of of how that occurs. But whatever Fonda Lee did here, her writing was so evocative of that that like it felt like I was watching um a film like crouching tiger or something like that it was so good and then there was loads of points in it where i felt like she maybe uh um dipped into like anime style tropes and where the writing was kind of evocative of kind of common anime sort of things particularly when it comes to battle and i really 
really enjoyed it. There was one scene, one of the fights, I can't remember exactly which one, it was early in the book, where I think Hilo was fighting someone, or or maybe it was, no, it was Lan. Lan was fighting the person he ultimately got all the excess jade from that oh, ended yeah. up killing him. And there was one line where she had, like, the opponent threw up a deflection wall, and then that sent uh, Lan flying backwards, but he flew backwards in the you know the anime thing where you're kind of like you're in a you're in a solid stance and you're yeah, just like yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean <laughs> yeah yeah and then you like the tarmac gets ripped up under your feet and she wrote that in a way that was like really eloquent and in in hardly any words immediately made me feel like I was watching an anime and I think that's deliberate I think it's deliberate and it's it, it's really invocative of this sort of like you know East Asian wuxia kind of vibe. Um, she did a great job there. Like it's so vivid, and like the the, the town, the city as well. Like when there there was um, various bits of the plot that occurred at feast days. Like I could smell the street food through her writing. I could smell it. I could I could it brought me back to being in Asia. Like just a dense mass of people and like street food out there and the smells of all the things. It was her writing was exquisite without being dense or or technical or anything. It was just beautiful i absolutely loved it cool <laughs> cool um what else what, have i got um, if you were oh. to say kind of an, an an analogous period to to earth history what would you say it was set in so i think this feels like a 20s sort of vibe um to me with all the like motor cars and things so i'm i'm imagining a uh, a rapidly expanding asian sort of environment like akin to korea except with a sort of 20s vibe um is how i imagine it why do you ask just because i I was curious because i I felt it was kind of 60s you thought of 60s yeah because it's it's about a generation after a a global war sure uh, which is mentioned uh followed by like a period of uh, decolonization um, and there's a sort of implicit uh, Cold War between the Aspensians and Igatanians. Um, and I just mean, like the... the it, It's not much later than that, like, because people still use typewriters and send letters and they don't have mobile phones. So it's it's probably not, like, 90s. Um, and they, they have, like, phonographs rather than, than other means of, of um, media, music. Musical media, um, yeah. So I felt that the, the the many nations war was kind of an analogous to World War Two, and there's the th- issue of jade proliferation. Other countries sure. trying to get jade for their spec ops um, military, uh, which felt like maybe a bit analogous to uh, nuclear proliferation after the Second World War. So I would agree with everything you just said. But it doesn't feel sixties to me. <laughs> hmm. There was motorbike gangs. I mean, I guess I don't know why I just think of Jan Loon as being like a roaring twenties sort of place, except you know, Asian. Um, mad. Yeah, it's mad. Just a, a brief tangent on time periods. Um, I I think uh, maybe just me, or I think maybe others. Uh, Time period is a bit weird for the last century. Like whenever I think sixties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is stereotypically sixties here in the West 
actually occurred kind of in the 70s and the 60s aren't what I think the 60s is. Um, so I always think of 60s being like hippie sort of thing, free love and that sort of thing. But I remember looking into this a while ago and being like, that's actually more the 70s. And the 60s are more kind of like, um, I guess, Mad Men-esque or something like that. Um, I feel like my decades are like shifted a little bit. Do you feel this? Do you think others feel this? I know what you mean. Like the, the hippie thing was very much late 60s. So, you know, there, there's a whole section of it there where that wasn't relevant. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that things can overlap decade yeah. delineations. Yeah. And that throws me off a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, the 90s lasted from 1988 until 2001. The, or sorry, from 1989. The, the, the 90s as kind of a cultural period starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ends with September 11th. Like... <sighs> It's not like oh. uh, the calendar 90s, but the 90s as kind of a cultural uh, concept and a, a, yeah. as a, a period in the West is is bigger than than what they are in the in the calendar. I never considered it ending at 9-11, but that would make sense because 9-11 was such a massive paradigm shift yeah. um, that it would trigger a, a sort of change in kind of cultural state. Um, do you ever think about, uh, sorry, we're off topic here. Just brief, brief. Uh, On this podcast, who would have thunk it, eh? <laughs> um, let's talk more shrimp. Uh, no, the. Um, uh, do you ever think about what the sort of like? Because you know, it can it can be kind of difficult to to identify the culture stew you are currently stewing in, and it's only with sure. retrospect that you're kind of like, oh, the eighties were all like you know shoulder pads, glitter, and glam rock, that sort of thing, right? Um, do you ever think about what's going to define the decade? uh that we are currently in because every time i think about that i'm always kind of like i don't know like it feels like we're in like a non um idiomatic like uh decade we don't have anything that we can point to and be like this is the thing this is the thing that's going to make this decade stand out amongst the others um and i'm sure there is something but just again when you're in it it's hard to identify any thoughts oh, on pandemic might well the pandemic yeah but i mean i guess i guess i'm thinking more about like music uh dress those type of things you know um like if i were to set a film and want to give it the vibes of like the 2010s what are those vibes like what does that look like you know the 70s has a very a very um uh sort of set aesthetic um mm. 20s is another one 80s and even 90s has a set of sort of aesthetic but i feel like we're kind of aestheticless at the moment um, I think everyone feels that in their own time, though. But that's that's what I'm saying. Do you ever do you ever like try and take yourself out of the time we're currently in and think about what might be remembered from this time, aesthetic wise, in the future? Yeah, yeah. And what have you got? Thriller novels that are like monoc- single color, um, and uh, a silhouette of a man on the front. That's a real like the last fifteen years book cover design. That wasn't very common beforehand and is like was massively prolific like five years ago. Wow. I guess I missed yeah. all of that. I yeah. I, I like thought you were joking. All the child books kind of look sort of like that. Wow. And then loads of others that have I don't know if he originated it, but loads of others that are similar to it. Huh. Do you have anything on music? I can identify something with music. I wonder what um, it is. In the 2010s, there was all that like stomp stomp hay stuff. 
you know, Mumford and Sons and the Lumineers and <laughs> guys with waistcoats and beards and mandolins. <laughs> oh God, I love I love when you get exasperated. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess um, I know I specifically asked twenty tens, but I guess the current time period. I feel like um, as much as maybe people uh, hate to admit this, I think mumble rap has left a real dent on musical culture. Uh, and I think sure, even things yeah. that, are, that that aren't considered mumble rap uh, draw on the mumble rap aesthetic uh, an awful lot. Um, the way like triplet flow was was the thing of the 2010s. A little bit like that, yeah. Like okay. now sort of like, uh, you know, the aesthetic of kind of like I am pseudo drugged up and slurring my words at you in this song is kind mm. of, I think that might be very indicative of music of this time period. Um but books, books with a dude on the front, monocolored. That's, I would never, not in a month of Sundays, but I've expected you to say that. That is, that is something else. I have some research to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, back to Jade uh, City. I have uh, a couple more things that I, I would like to point out. Um, cool. Or, or actually, let me do a meta discussion. So at the start of this book, I was, I had a little bit of like an eye roll moment when Jade was mentioned. And it, it, it brought me back to Sanderson's What's the Book? You're going to have to remind me with the metal. Mistborn. Mistborn. Um, it brought me back to that where I'm kind of like uh, an object. We have IRL that is not magical, somehow has magic in this like alt setting, um, which I find a bit hard to to kind of wrap my head around. It breaks my suspension of disbelief when someone like, when Sanderson goes, pewter makes you jump high. And I'm like no uh, and then this had a similar thing where it's like jade gives you all these magic powers and i'm like no um so I-, I was primed to kind of not like it uh but the jade mechanic made this book what it is like if it was anything else this this book would just not have worked so that's fine but i kind of i don't know i think there are times where it's like we don't need a thing to give uh magic to people like we kind of sort of have this irl with like perfect pitch for example like that is like a pseudo magical gift that some people just have uh for reasons we don't know it's like they're just they're just born that way and you could just have a, a, a scenario where like magic is part of just being a human and you are born with an adeptitude for it or not like perfect pitch like avatar uh not the blue people the other one um it's just kind of like you're born with it because, like, I'd know more sensitivity to the spirit realm or something like that, which is basically the same as like having musical uh, abilities here. It's just you were born with it, um, and I, I, I know I was, I was, yeah. Like I said, when I when I saw the jade stuff, I was like, oh no, here we go. But it worked. But in general, uh, I kind of like my magic to just be a it exists sort of thing. Mm. Um, agree, disagree, hot debate. <laughs> is this uh, robots two point <laughs> No, no strong feeling on it. To be honest, like you know, th- th- there's room for either. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, like it, said, it, it, you know, th- this it, you couldn't rewrite this book with that change. That's um, that's exactly it. And I was paying attention as I went through and was like, oh no, like I can't have what I want here. It just would not work. Um, because it's not just a source of magic. It's a sort of source of like geopolitical power. And it's a resource, and, and it is yeah. a mineral, a, a, a real like this. Just, this thing costs money, as well as it makes magic. So yeah, you couldn't do it. Um, mm. 
there was another thing here. There is a line, uh, a bit of lore here. Um, they have this uh, saying, gold and jade, never together. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a really nice reframing of kind of absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the idea of that if you are jaded, um, you you are a magician, but you're also uh, a wusha, a wusha godfather magi- a magician, um, but you also should not hold political power. Um yeah. Because that would be absolute power corrupt, corrupting absolutely. And then I love the way that there's this whole like ISO code um, that kind of like dictates how these clans, like an honor-based code system that dictates how these clans function such that the, this this motto, golden jade, never together, is actually upheld for the most part over a yeah. long period of time. Um, and I really enjoyed that. It was just a very nice little bit of flavor. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. Again, the depth of the, of the the implications and the ramifications of this existing in the world that was an example of it being well thought through. Yeah, and we see it bear out because stuff like the yeah no no jaded members in the government. Yeah. Um, and the government uh, ostensibly control the jade supply, so there's kind of like a a, a there's meant to be a check on the various powers there. And yeah. also another thing that that I thought was cool was the um they have this KCON Jade Alliance. Um, so it's like this one, I read it as like, almost like a, um, a public company almost, um, that controls the jade. And there's like a rule very much akin to German football where no one can own more than 50% (laughs) of the KCON Jade Alliance. So you have each of the clans have like uh, a vested interest, like financial interest in this. And there's a whole web of checks and powers, um, or checks and balances that keep things from getting under control. And I guess a lot of the In tension, theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in theory. And I guess a lot of the tension in this book is that the mountain has decided this is crap. We yeah, just want to seize control. Perch. Yeah, they want to just seize control of everything and become uh, what was once the old one mountain society, like one clan to rule over all of KCON and become the dominant political force both on the island and in the world as a whole as we currently see it what, what's the thing with german football no no one person can can own more than 50 percent of the club yeah it's called the 50 plus one rule now admittedly i don't know that much about it but they have laws in place that a billionaire can't just come in and own the club um okay. oh yeah no that that's it that's it the oh fans control 50 plus one yeah 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 fans control 50 plus one yeah i knew so, there was something about fans yeah, so no one moneyed interest can come in and take over more than 49% mm-hmm. of the club. It's always going to be fan-owned, which is class. And just if I may, just real quickly, I find it kind of hilarious that such a system breeds mad wealth inequality. And I don't really understand how this occurs because in German football, you have like basically one team and all the rest just don't win things. Um, mm. You have this one team, Bayern Munich, who like, I think they've won the title like 10 years running. Like every year, they just win the title. Even though all the clubs have this sort of like pseudo-socialist fan-owned thing going on where money shouldn't buy you power. But for whatever reason, just German football is set up in such a way that even with these checks and balances, just power accumulates at the top in an odd way that is akin to the more kind of like capitalist sort of um, English football um, division. And I find it really fascinating. But no one else cares, cares about this, so I'm going to shut up now. Next point on Jade <laughs> City, Bill. Um, I think I have made all of my points. Let me just re-look at my notes. Come on. 
yeah, I think I think that's kind of everything. I've started reading the sequel. Oh, you have? Well, actually, let me interrogate that in a second. Okay. Um, I have one final point, and that is, I think the core theme of this book is acceptance. I don't know if that's how you read this book as well, but I think this is basically a big giant character study on all the ways in which uh, we strive for acceptance in the world. Um, because you have Lan, the, the boss guy, um, trying to be like his grandfather, be accepted in the eyes of his grandfather as a leader of the clan. Uh, later on, you have Hilo trying to be accepted but by his grandfather, but also by everyone else as a leader because they see him as the warrior and not the leader. And there's like a, a striving for acceptance. There is, with Shay, there's like her trying to accept herself in life outside mm-hmm. of the clan and then having to accept the idea that she can't completely decouple from the clan and she has to accept that life. There's the kid Anden, um, who we didn't really talk about here, but it plays a pivotal role in the story. Um, yeah. His sort of like being ex- accepting himself as a call um, and then eventually as as a non-magic user, accepting that that's not a path for him given his his history Uh, and then you can go through each and every single character and it's all a story on acceptance ipe mada the idea of like striving to be accepted in a male uh dominated world um the makes being accepted by the uh no peak clan uh after being mountain traitors the whole thing is just like uh yeah like i said like a character study in acceptance and it was very obvious to me to the point where I'm kind of like every time a new character came along, I'm like, how will this person struggle to be accepted in various things? Um, and I'm wondering, did you did you get this or is this just uh, my lunatic rantings? I did not pick up on that in that way, hmm. but um, I would struggle to to say exactly what the uh, to, to put the the theme in a single word. So perhaps I'd have to think hmm. about it. Okay. Now tell me about book two. Um, so book two, it starts about sixteen months later, um, I think, and it opens with Barrow robbing a grave. <laughs> How, as far as you've read, has Barrow made any more mad missteps? Um, see, I hadn't really been thinking of it in the same terms, but he's been doing okay, I guess. Has he? He's been doing okay, yeah. He's been doing okay. Putting in the uh, grind. He's on the grind. He's got that grind set and it is going yeah. nowhere. God Sigma bless male it. grind set. Um, the, the scope of it uh, expands a bit more. So um, you you see more about what's going on in Aspensia and in Kekanese communities in Aspensia and the, mm. the effect of or the, the the place that Kikon plays on the global stage. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in, I'm enjoying it very much. The book is called Jade War, is it not? Jade War. Yeah. And the third okay. one I think is called Jade Legacy. And I just saw today that there's a there's a short story I think set in the same same setting, but I'm not sure whether it's before or after the the trilogy. Hmm. Called um, the Jade Setter of Janloon. That is that's interesting. That so you really did like this if you were compelled enough to read the second book. Mm-hmm. Hmm. interesting I do you know I had the same thought I was like oh I should really go read the second book but then I was like let me read this book again 
in prep yeah. for this podcast because much like the films i like to do things twice um yeah. and this one was so easy to chew through that i was like i can easily get this done uh twice now that being said i literally finished my second reading i put the book down about 20 minutes before we record this podcast um <laughs> i was up at 6 a.m and listened to about two hours of recording uh to get it done in time so i think i think given that we are not going to have another uh book review episode for a little while anyways so we go back to the standard episode i think i might download uh book two uh, and possibly book three and have and have a listen to them um cool. because like you i i am i am intrigued to see where this goes i really am yeah. um and I, I i'm very intrigued about that andon character who we didn't actually mention that much um because i'm intrigued what happens with him he has shunned the jaded lifestyle currently mm-hmm. at the end of this book and i can't imagine that that's a thing that would remain because the cool thing here is that he had he has like a, a bit of a bond with shay um and shay went through this idea of like i don't want to do jade uh be part of the clan i don't want to be jaded but then was forced to be jaded and i could imagine Anden going through a similar story arc where he's like i am dangerous if i'm jaded so he gives up and shuns jade but then later on he could realize that for the greater good I'm just going to have to try and make this sacrifice. Um, and then I could see him and Shay having to have a lot of like deep and meaningful talks with one another to try and navigate this sort of um, transition for him. Mm-hmm. Um, like he may need to become the monster that he thinks he will become in order to achieve some sort of great victory, uh, which I think is cool and has very many kind of like uh, tantalizing tendrils running through that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Those are my thoughts on on Jade City by Fonda Lee. Cool. Do we have anything in closing? I always find it really hard to end these shows. We're just kind of like, are we? Are we done now? I guess we are. I yeah. I think I think that is it. I don't think I have any further points. Okay. Um. Great book. Strongly suggest people reading it. Strongly, strongly suggest people reading it. Um. All right. So as mentioned earlier in the show, but I'm just going to say it again. Next, this is a fairly short episode. Next time we record, we it's going to be back to a full-on proper episode where we have world building, follow-up, green room, all that sort of jazz. It'll be a more meaty, you know, one and a half, two-hour podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Thanks for Thank watching for on YouTube. Thank you for supporting us on uh, Patreon. Uh, until next time. Edgar, Edgar out. Out. Thank you.